So um, if you want to have a transformed relationship, it's important to learn about the brain. And I would like to make two points about the brain. Uh, the first is that Harvard and I are part of the mental health field. And we've been thinking more and more about the fact that the mental health field should be focused on health, how to be healthy. But actually, there's been a real focus on illness. And the way the brain has been treated in past decades has been very damaging to the brain. So that's the first point. And let me just give you a little background. Uh, it was in 1900 that Dr. Freud uh, came out with his sort of um, groundbreaking book. And it catalyzed the birth of the mental health field. So that's what uh, 117 years ago. And he had all these followers. He was a doctor. He, he, he grounded the whole uh, field uh, on the medical model. And so he wanted to identify uh, ways he saw uh, people being ill, like hysteria. And he began to list them. And then his followers began to list more and more ways. You know, it, you, you, a doctor, you have to know what the illness is and then how to treat it. So they created the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. And over the decades, and all these followers kept compiling data, they got a hundred ways that you could be sick, and then we found the right treatment for that illness. Uh, the next couple decades, pretty soon there were 200 ways. I mean, not only, you know, the, the, yes, hysteria, but you could be depressed, you might be manic, you might be manic-depressed, you might be schizophrenic or schizoid, or pretty soon there were 300 ways. You might be multiple personality. One of my favorites is inadequate personality. Um, you, they just went on and on with all the refined, the three, there are now three, they came out with the fifth diagnostic statistical manual about a year ago, the DSM-5. 300 ways you can be fucked up. Isn't that <laughs> quite an achievement, you know? And there are the treatments of that. I mean, this, they are so proud. I can't imagine these people. But then, um, yeah, and then there are 154 ways they can be, these illnesses can be treated. But if a friend of ours said to us about five or six years ago, gee, mental health field, if you want to be healthy, shouldn't everyone be studying health? Well, I thought, we thought that was really interesting. Uh, sadly, in all this, the mental health field, um, it used to be that you used to work on the brain. Uh, well, first, only psychiatrists, but anyway, you know, really studied the brain. But, but there was hypnosis, and then there was you know, dream analysis, and there was um, free association. But then there was, like, electric shock. Um, in, in the case of my family, I had um, a half-brother who was lobotomized. So I know what that's really like, and that was my father giving my half-brother the best uh, treatment at the time. 
um, and thank goodness, psychotropic medication, you can just take enough drugs and like kill how you're feeling. And so this is, this is the medical model doing its best to try to create a healthy brain. Um, and the good news is that um, there have been breakthroughs in neuroscience that allow us <coughs> to think about the brain in a completely different way. So um, Harville, with, born in South Georgia, last of eight, and everyone said, look, you, you make it. We couldn't finish high school. We never got to go to college, but we hope you do. So Harville left his sharecropper's family and got a degree and went to New York City, got another degree, Chicago, University of Chicago, then was teaching in Dallas, um, never had a course on the brain. Uh, I uh, got a master's in counseling psych after my divorce and went halfway through a PhD in clinical psych, uh, never had a course on the brain. Um, and it's only, it was just all about psychiatrists studied the brain and they medicated or electric shock or whatever. Um, and very, you know, a lot, most practitioners hadn't studied, didn't study the brain until the 1990s. There were some breakthroughs in neuroscience and that was uh, a concept called neuroplasticity. Dr. Freud had said anatomy is destiny. The brain you're born with is the brain you're <coughs> gonna die with. But the neuroscientist in the 1990s said, no, you can actually shape your brain by the thoughts you run through your mind. And that, like, you can either fixate on childhood, like, oh, you know, and I need to go back. We've just taken you back into childhood to identify some things. What's that balance? You can really um, spend so much time thinking of the childhood pain, I think the phrase was woundology. Has anyone heard that phrase uh, decades ago? That like so focused on the wound. Oh, but I'm wounded, I'm wounded. Well, yes, but you can heal by, uh, by an understanding of the brain. So you really need to balance. It was such a astute question. Balance that identifying childhood issues but moving into who do you want to be now and how do you repair the wounds from childhood. So um, this is so exciting to me that Freud did the best he could. The brain you're born with is the brain you're going to die with. No. You know, the, 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 the wisdom now is you can't change your first thought but you can change your second thought. And you can, and, and one of the things that helps you pause and change your second thought, a thought that might have hope to it, is a sentence stem. When you pause and, Guy, if you mirror Karen, it gives you a chance to do your own neural regulation before then you talk back to her and you can come from a better place. So you can really take a lot of mental health care um, for you and your partner in your own hands if you understand your brain. Uh, we've, uh, they also discovered that 
um, instead of the brain uh, just sort of functioning as itself, we have social brains. Our brains are experience dependent. And when Harville showed you that still face experience, that little baby and the mother who wasn't responding in an attuned way to her baby, that baby decompensated and began to damage the <clears throat> baby's brain in terror that the mom wasn't responding. And that's a, a video of a baby and a, a mother, but there's a baby in each one of us, and your partner has a little baby inside, and your partner is longing for you to learn presence and practice presence with them so they can feel safe. So, um, so I'll sh quickly, how many of y'all have read the Brain Science for Lay People? The, has anyone studied that very much? So it's really, yeah, I've noticed you all really resonating. So um, it's so exciting. So y'all are in for a great learn um, in this part of the workshop. Basically, for decades, neuroscientists have said the brain can be um, uh, segmented into three parts, the reptilian brain, the limbic system, and the neocortex. So um, the lower brain reacts. Uh, the midbrain feels, processes, and the upper brain thinks. So I'm going to go over each in a little more detail. Um, this reptilian brain is what they call it. A key way it functions is it reacts. It's just automatic, fight or flight, you know, that kind of thing. So say I walk into the kitchen and no one's been in the kitchen for a while, and someone comes in and they're talking to me, and I sort of put my hand on the stove and talk back to them, um, and I think the stove is off, and the stove is in fact on. Someone left it on. So do I do an analysis before I take my hand off? No, it's immediate. And that's how the lower brain works. When you're in the shower and water falls in your eyes, you blink. And you, you really can't help it. Um, so I, I love the fact that when we visit Harville's family in Georgia, we sometimes go to the swamps and see those crocodiles. So I think of the crocodiles um, uh, as I think about the lower brain, because they're really sort of peaceful critters. They have sort of a little smile, actually. They just, if you leave them alone, they're perfectly happy. You know, they just like to sunbathe by the side of the swamp. And maybe if it gets a little warm, they get up and so they slowly waddle into the swamp. And then they float and they sort of look like a log. And they're really, I mean, they're really sort of peaceful unless they get irritated. And then <laughs> they raise their, you know, open their mouth and they can snap your arm off guy, you know, just bam, <laughs> it's just like, they're fierce, yuck. So inside of your partner is a crocodile brain. And if you learn to leave the crocodile alone and you don't irritate <clears throat> it, your partner, you know, is the crocodile is going to sleep peacefully. But um, if you are someone who will raise issues with your partner before you go to bed at night, and you raise an issue, and you know it's going to press their buttons, 
like I used to do. That was the time the kids were asleep. I had undivided attention. That's when I could talk to Harville about ways, things he hadn't done well, that he could improve himself. The crocodile brain will take over, and you will be basically sleeping with a crocodile that whole night in your partner. And the next morning, there are these little phrases of, oh, honey, I'm so sorry for what I said last night. I didn't mean it. I, I just flipped my lid. I, I went out of my head. I lost my mind. I, didn't, I really didn't mean it. But that's literally true. The lower brain took over the upper brain, and they lost their senses. They lost their rational thinking in that moment. So you can control your partner's crocodile brain. Midbrain, just memories, processes feelings. It's a wonderful part of the brain. It expresses who we are, our past, present. Hippocampus, a great part of the brain. The upper brain is more like a computer. And um, the prefrontal cortex organizes data, brainstorms new solutions. I love the fact that the upper brain creates win-wins. That lower brain is, it's my way or the highway. But the upper brain goes, hey, how can I have what I want, but you also get what you want? And so all of us in the room Let's do everything we can to practice living from the upper brain. And that's what the sentence stems do, again. Instead of just automatically reacting to your partner with what they've said, pause and mirror them back and see if you've got it. And that takes you out of your reactivity. You move to that upper brain. And you'll have your time to talk, but for the moment, let your brain move to the um, upper neocortex, and this brings about neural integration. So uh, the neuro, the, this new brain science, as these women will tell you, are all about taking control of your own brain. You can heal your brain these days with a concept of neuroplasticity. You don't have to have a lobotomy. <laughs> and I can tell you, I lived with that man for... 20 years after he was lobotomized, he came to the house and lived with us. And it was so sad, because that's, that's, so it's just thrilling, this new part of the brain. I mean, this new uh, brain science. Um, basically, your brain's trying to keep you alive, right? So at any moment, your partner is scanning to see if it's safe and dangerous. And you, in this workshop, you're trying to figure out, is that couple still here? They're still here. We're so glad you're here. So you're trying to figure out, is it safe or dangerous in this workshop? Is this going to be too stressful? We could be out in the park. Or you're, are we going to stay here? Is it too stressful? So they, they're still here. So they're trying to figure out, is this a safe, all of us, so many of you this morning, is this a safe or dangerous place? Is my partner safe or dangerous to be around? And when it's dangerous, we can't help it. We flee, fright, or freeze. But when it's safe, we can connect. We can nurture, and we can play. 
The brain, last point, the brain also has two hemispheres. Uh, the left brain, which is the thinking part of the brain, rational, knows how to compute, put things in order, and the right brain, which the upper right brain, which is an intuitive part of the brain and processes by uh, not logic, but instinct, intuition. That left brain is like data on Star Trek. I want everything to compute. And the right brain is uh, sort of emotional. Uh, and the reason I, I um, wanted to share all this with you is I wanted to share, especially how this last part of the, of the brain showed up in our marriage and almost saved our marriage. I mean, we were really in trouble, but this part of brain science really saved us, and it's one of the reasons we're here today as a couple. So let me step back into our personal story, tell you a little bit about what happened, and I'll turn it back to Harville. So here we are. We had been dating. I had met Harville in Dallas. And we dated actually for about five years before I proposed, because I was a little shy. But I just wasn't sure, because there was so much I liked about him, but we actually didn't get along very well. So, <laughs> but he was so cool. He was so wonderful. But I... There were so many hunts in Dallas. I felt like I, should, I wanted to get away from all those hunts, all those people. There were so many families. that. So I moved to New York, and Harville was free to come with me. And so we set up a home in New York. His two kids, my two kids, we had two more. Oh, the Brady Bunch. I thought this was going to be so much fun. <laughs> but, um, but then we also really worked on the book. And after some years, the book got published. Oh, that was so thrilling. So, um, but who's going to buy a book by someone named Harville? Oh. Yeah, so, so I was worried about that. So the book came out in 1988. So Harville and I suggested that we go throughout the New York bookstores, go and say, uh, do you have Getting the Love You Want by Harville Hendricks? And if they said no, oh, you don't? Well, yeah, I mean, it surely came in. It must be at the And they go, oh, yes, it's in the boxes in the back. It's just come in. So, oh, you should be in your front window. And let me buy a book, and then I put it in the front window as I left and went to the next bookstore. I was doing everything I could to market this book, and we, uh, we had more fun doing that, trying to make it visible, when about six weeks after the book came out, the phone rang. I answered the phone, and uh, they asked for Harville. I said, uh, he's, not a, he's not here, I'll take a message. And they said, well, this is the Oprah Winfrey studio. Uh, yes, uh, is there something I can tell him? They said, well, we'd like him on the show. 
So I said, uh, well, I'll have him call you back. Thank you. Ah, 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 whoa, this is so great. What's he going to wear? Oh, no. Okay, so he goes on the show, and she takes that show, and she submits it to the Emmy committee. And that show won Oprah her first Emmy. So it was so funny, the kids and I were around the TV with Harville watching the Emmys, and they announced of the five that she got them, Oprah got the most redeeming talk show host award that year, her first Emmy. We were just jumping up and down, and Harville was going. We said, what's wrong, Harville? He said, well, I should be up there getting that Emmy. <laughs> he should have. <laughs> but she then had him on 17 times. So this guy from South Georgia, named Harville, <laughs> was suddenly world famous. And I just, we were so thrilled. And over time, um, it, it was published in many different languages, about 60 languages. People began to flock for training to learn to do this. And today, there are about 2,300 Imago therapists in 37 countries. This works in any culture, anywhere, and this really works, and Oprah's really smart. So we are just thrilled. Um, but problems had crept in at home, and it was really, really hard. And, um, and basically, Harville wasn't following my good advice. <laughs> I hope no, no one in the room is as bad as me thinking you know, that someone's good advice is going to solve the problem. It's all about practicing presence. That's what heals a relationship, not good advice. So I just was very crushed because I didn't really mind if we didn't have a perfect marriage. But um, it was just really hard. It became hard for me with Harville being so famous that um, that what was happening at home was really different from what everyone would th think. So for me, it was becoming sort of a moral issue, or, or not a moral issue, an ethical issue, that if we couldn't achieve a good relationship at home, was it right to stay married when, um, when everywhere we went, everyone thought we had a good marriage, and we didn't. So, Finally, he agreed to go to a therapist. And the good news is there's so many great therapists in New York, right? So we went to the first one, and after three sessions, we knew her stuff. It's not very good, we fired her. So we went to the second one, and same thing. He, after about six sessions, he talked and talked and talked, but it, we're, we, he didn't know how to handle marriages, so we fired them. Fourth therapist, we fired them. The fifth marriage therapist, we went in, and um, after three sessions, the therapist stood up and said that, that she fired us as a client and that we were the couple from hell. And she wouldn't see us anymore. And it was really sad, so we had no alternative but to go to um, after the therapist, we went to the divorce attorneys, 
And so we drew up the papers. We called in the kids. We told our kids we were divorcing. And then we had an Imago therapy meeting, and we stood up in front of the Imago therapist and told them we respected them too much to keep pretending that we knew how to do this when we didn't know how to do it. And the reason I, 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 I and I'm appreciative, Harville will let me tell this story, is that we just don't want you all to think that um, we can do this because it's easy for us, but for you all it's hard. We just want you to know it was really hard for us to get it right, even though we knew how to teach it. So what, what happened for me is suddenly I read a book on separate and connected knowing. And it was a book it was my, by some feminist epistemologist who said there are two ways to know things. You can separate from the thing to be known, like an architect, to design the roof. You have to separate to make sure all the nuts and bolts are in the same place. Or you can connect to know something by moving into it and feeling it and then moving out. And suddenly, I realized it was Harville's left brain hemisphere that was so strong because he could write about marriage. And then for me, I could feel the problems and talk about them, but I wasn't succinct. I wasn't good at talking about the problems. I wasn't left brain enough. He wasn't right brain enough. So suddenly we're on the way to the divorce, and I go up to him, and I go, Harville, Harville, maybe we don't have to divorce. Our neural energy, our neural thing was hijacked, and we just need brain surgery. <laughs> and with, if we could just like fix our brains, then, and our brains could become whole, then we could have a healthy marriage. So he was willing to give that a try. That instead of being so left brain and rational, he would practice being emotional and feeling. And me, instead of being so emotional and focusing on the problems and da 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 da, my, I should become rational and think about talking to him in a way that would engage him into problem solving and problem solve with him. So basically, we aced it, we fixed it. By, by learning to change our brains. I was in the victim place, and so I just want to share my, my part in our marriage. That, and I, I, I bet no one in this room is as bad as me. I loved keeping track of all the things Harville did wrong. And that was like, I thought that was an achievement. Like, <laughs> and that is just a horrible thing to do if anyone is doing that to their partner. That doesn't solve the problem. Because Harville is longing to come out and play with me, but who's going to play with someone that keeps telling them what they're doing wrong? So that, I just had to, like, I thought, I just loved feeling so righteous. I'm so, I'm so good, and he's not. And goodness, that was it. And then I realized I was the problem. And then um, learning about neuroplasticity is so empowering. So we're glad we can share <clears throat> that part of um, the healing process with you at this point in the workshop. So dialogue, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. The other thing, one day I went up to Harville and I said, Harville, this is just so amazing. Do, do you know what you did 
dialogue integrates the two brain hemispheres. When, Guy, you, Guy, when you learn to mirror well, you're going to be developing a part of your left brain. That's going to get stronger, and you'll be able to speak more succinctly, and you're going to strengthen that part of your brain when Karen says, I feel mirrored by you. You got it just right. And then validation and empathy that we're going to be focused more on, that develops the right brain. And I just thought that was amazing. The three steps of dialogue help integrate your brain. Thank you. You got an applause. Oh. I haven't gotten an applause yet. <clears throat> I'm jealous. Ah! I could have been direct and just asked for it, but instead of being indirect and sort of glancing blow. But anyway, he, uh, he get an go, applause any way you he, can. By the way, he goes in the victim place sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of fun. So now we want to move you back into an exercise. And the on-ramp to the exercise is a comment, um, <clears throat> first of all, about memory. And the brain is the storehouse of memory. And there are two locations. One is in the amygdala, which is the storehouse of emotions, of emotional memories. And those are primarily located there in the first three years of life so that no events are recorded in the amygdala, only feelings that come from interactive experiences. And the hippocampus comes online uh, at about age of three or four, and you begin then to remember events and feelings. So what we want to emphasize is the power of memory. And here's what sucks about this is that there is no way you can look at the world except through the prism of your memories. So if you want to know how you're looking at the world, you have to know what memories you have, what experiences you've had that have shaped your perspective. And you'll always have a perspective. You just need to know you have one, that it's a perspective. It is not pristine reality. It is reality colored by your experience. And none of us can escape that um, filter between things as they are and our filter by which we look at them. So what, therefore, um, <clears throat> we face when we face our partner is that we are looking at them through the filter of our memories, and the primary memories are emotional because they came in the first three years of life, and you don't have access to the experiences that produce those emotions. So you think that your partner is doing that. You don't know that a memory is being triggered because you can't connect it to an event. You can't say, you're like my mother, because you don't have a memory that that emotion went with your mother. It may get it connected to the mother after three or four years old when the hippocampus can hold the event and the feeling, but up until then. So some of us just think our partners are triggering. They're, they're just messing up our lives, and we don't know that our reaction to them is filtered by uh, emotions to which we can attach events. So it's important to know this. So 
we all start in what we call original connecting, <clears throat> which we have four basic uh, avenues to the world. We think, but those are, that's filtered by memory. Our feelings come from memories. The way we move is also a function of memory. And how we experience our senses in the world is a function of memory. So you can't get out of memory uh, unless you want your hippocampus, um, uh, you know, have brain surgery and get the hippocampus out. I think part of our brain surgery, Helen, was going to the zero negativity process as well. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was a way mm -hmm. to, to begin changing that. Mm -hmm. So memories that are primary are come from early life experiences with caretakers. Everybody had a childhood. And if you're in this room and you say, well, I had a great childhood. I just don't understand how I have such a difficult marriage. You didn't have a good childhood. <clears throat> you just can't remember the pain of the childhood because it's so hard to remember that. So you've projected it onto your partner. So many of you will say, I, you know, I just can't find any bad memories in my childhood. Well, that means that you have repressed them. Because if you, are, if, if, if you had the great relationship you say you had with your parents, if you had that great relationship, you wouldn't be in this room. You'd be out playing golf today or doing something else. But memory is what brought you here. Now, if you had attuned caretaking, you had consistent warmth. They were attuned to you. You knew they were present. They were available when they were with you. They supported you. They helped you regulate your behavior. They modeled how to do it. They gave you information about the world, and they helped you set boundaries. <clears throat> so now you can function. Well, about 10% of the people on the planet had that kind of memory, and they're not here today. <laughs> so what those of us had who are here today is an unattuned caretaking. Doesn't mean they were always out of touch, but fundamentally they were out of touch. And there are two kinds of unattuned caretaking. And the literature on, and research on this can be summarized into this. There are two kinds of caretaking that creates um, difficult memories. One is the caretaker who was intrusive. How many of you had intrusive caretakers? Over-involved, smothering, mind-reading, invasive. How many? Intrusive, okay. The other one is the neglectful parent. How many of you had the parent who's kind of not there? Yeah. Now, so the impact of those experiences shaped your memories, and that's the um, world you brought into adulthood. So this next exercise and the preceding one is to try to help you get what did you bring from childhood into your adult relationship so that you can know the difference between what he is doing that is kind of not acceptable anyway and what he's doing that just triggers your memories that, uh, and messes up the idealized person that you have in your mind about what he should be doing, which is, again, based on compensatory memories. So it's pretty complex. But th it's a simple thing to get. Now, we want to remind you of this still face experience. I'm not going to rerun it. But remember the still face. <clears throat> the first 45 seconds, this baby was having a primal memory of connecting. And the baby was fully alive. And that aliveness and connecting was not coming out of the baby. It was the baby registering it in her neural pathways as a result of the quality of the interaction 
with her mother, the caretaker. So a memory was built that was um, consistent with being. The baby was simply experiencing being. That's what it's like when you're experiencing being, which is your true nature. That's us. And when we're not that, something's happened. Then you remember the second 45 seconds, the mother turned away and turned back with a still face. Now, wasn't that amazing? The mother was still in the room. The mother was looking at the baby, and the baby went into a panic. Why was that? Because the mother ruptured the interactive flow of the connecting. And the baby, with that rupture, the brain said, I could die here. The baby, of course, doesn't have any words, but that's the, act, that's the power of the psychic experience. I could die here. I have to get that face to recognize me in order to be. Now, what the <clears throat> uh, psychological research is, is we come into being through the mirror of the other. We do not just come into being. You can't come into being without the reflection back of the other. And therefore, the being you come into has to do with the quality of the reflection of the other. So the mother um, here, after the first 45 seconds, <clears throat> now smiled again. And the baby looked, and you notice that for about three or four seconds, like, there's that smile. And then the baby returned to the flow. They began to play again. And by the way, play is the, if you can spontaneously play, that's the top feature of the most thriving and optimal relationships is the ability for spontaneous play, like they were doing at the beginning and like they were doing at the end. Now, this research is not done anymore <clears throat> because that three to five minute second in which the baby was trying to see what is going on now, that left a memory, which they discovered with studying this baby later was counterproductive to this research. The baby had a ruptured, a memory of a rupture that was artificially induced, and therefore it became um, essentially unprofessional and at some level immoral to induce anxiety. So they don't do it anymore. This, so this is one of the most instructive two-minute tapes I have ever seen about the human situation, about both its tragedy and its possibility that you can restore connecting. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to do it, and that's what we're about this, uh, on this workshop. So unattuned caretakers um, have either a turnaway, that is, they're there and then they turn away and rupture the connection, or when they are present, they are absent. And that's sort of the still face. You know when you're with your partner and you're walking along and you say, blah, 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 look at that car over there, look at that over there, and look at it, and your partner doesn't respond? You know what that's like? Are they on their phone? Yep. They're not present. And, or, you know, when you're on your phone and your partner's talking, we have to put it the other way too, you're not present. Presence is essential for connecting. And connecting is essential for the experience of full aliveness. And full aliveness is your true being, which only comes in the interactive, the quality of the interactive space. 
So we just want to put that down. How many of you grew up with a still face? <clears throat> oh, you know what we're talking about. How many of you use a still face with your partner? Are you aware of that? Good, honest people here. Anybody else who's honest? Yes. Ah, of course, yes. What about the turnaway? <clears throat> Felt the turnaway from the caretakers. They were present, turned away, occasionally came back, turned away. Couldn't count on them being there. They would turn away. And, but when they turned back, they would smile. But then they would turn away and rupture it. And you couldn't count on it. So turnaways, how many turnaways? Look at that. It's about half and half. Guess what? That's the way it has to work out. Because if you grew up with a still face who, uh, you know, was there, you will marry somebody who had a turnaway experience. Because relationships are complementary. And you'll always marry somebody whose uh, defense is different from yours. So that's why this is a half and half room. Isn't that cool? I think it sucks. <laughs> but it happens to be true. All right. So now we want to move to, oh, how did I press the wrong thing? Move now to um, just a quick diagnosis of this whole thing. If you lose connection, and all of us do, there are no human beings on the planet that have perfect parents <clears throat> in which you don't experience the rupture of connection. When that happens, you, the amygdala is triggered, which is the center of the brain, that organ in the brain. It's about the size of the end of your finger, maybe a little smaller. That is the sensor of whether or not I'm safe or in danger. And when the connection is ruptured, uh, the amygdala says, uh, which is always scanning, says, oh, danger, and triggers anxiety. The ruptured connection triggers anxiety. At the moment the anxiety is triggered, here's the most fascinating thing. Desire is born. We're not creatures with an innate desire. We're creatures whose desire was created by the loss of being. And when we lose connection with it, we want it back. And then when we get it back, we have no desires. You want nothing when you are connected to being because you're simply, that's being. And all that we want is a function of the absence of being and trying to find substitutes for it. Yes? Well, I did that. Lost both of mine very early. It sucks. Yeah, you have huge void. But then there often are parent replacements. So those memories come from the caretakers who replace them. I had sisters who replaced mine. But you have that void, and therefore the anxiety is um, the anxiety potential is deepened. That is, there's more anxiety because the primary anchor is gone, even if that was a negative anchor. So, but it depends on the child and what happened after the loss of the parents. Um, so, after you uh, go through anxiety, now here's what anxiety does to you. Anxiety creates enormous self-absorption. Because when you are in pain, this is emotional pain, nothing else exists, pretty much, except that pain. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you stump your toe on the way to the beach. There's no beach anymore. There's just a hurting toe. <clears throat> so you become self-absorbed. 
Now, the tragedy of self-absorption is that you don't receive data from the outside, except through the filter of that distortion. And that data, therefore, is distorted by your emotional experience. So you're not receiving data from the outside world. So you build an insulated self, an isolated self. And that's what gives us the illusion that we are a separate self, is that we've insulated ourselves with our defenses based on protecting ourselves from the experience of anxiety. And when you become self-absorbed, you lose connection. You've lost connection. You then create a world in your head and assume, because you're not receiving information from the outside world, that the world in your head is the world outside your head. So then when you go and interface with somebody outside your head and say something to them and they say something different from the world in your head, you say you're wrong. <clears throat> and you're not letting data in. The only way to ever change that is to let data in. And the primary place to do that is in a safe place where you can actually hear that your partner is not having the thought you think they have. Not doing the thing they think that you think they're doing. Not having the experience you think they're having. They're having their experience, and it's not the one you think is going on with them. That is traumatic for most of us, because now we know we've been living with a stranger who's had a, been living with a world we didn't know about because they were not living in the world we thought they were living in, which was they were adoring us <laughs> and not having any problems with us. So that's called emotional symbiosis. My subjectivity, my inner world, I think, is identical to your inner world, and when I discover that it's not, that's a problem. So when you go into emotional symbiosis, you have lost contact with another person, and therefore you lose empathy for other people. When you lose empathy for another, they then become an object. They're no longer human. And that's why you can hurt your partner, is that you have dehumanized them. If you do not feel your partner's self-experience, you are not experiencing them with, with empathic resonance. And therefore, you're relating to your projection of them rather than to their reality. And that's what produces the conflict, because they want to be seen. And so they're saying, no, that's not me. That's not it. This is the way it is. Am I, anybody recognize anything I'm saying about, about this? Okay. Just want to be sure. And when that happens, our search then begins to recover that original experience. And we look for it. It shows up again in romantic love. When you fall in love, you get what the baby had in the first few seconds. That's the experience of aliveness. You lose it in the power struggle. And so then you turn to other things to have something that is about being, which you can't get without experiencing being, which is only available in the quality of the interactive space with your partner. So that's why we focus on dialogue. And we want to do now a, a dialogue called the parent-child dialogue. And we'd like two people to come up and help us do this. <laughs> 